take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of Colossians this morning. To the book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, turn to page 984 in that pew rack Bible there. Just grab that and open up to page 984. And that's where we'll be for the entirety of our time as we continue in our series entitled Preeminent. And uh, last uh, week we made a shift in our series by looking, uh, no longer looking at Christ being preeminent in our world, but now looking at how he's to be preeminent in our walk and in our relationships. And last week we talked about how Christ was to be preeminent in our relationship uh, with our sin. And uh, we talked about the importance of uh, getting rid of some of the things in our life, literally putting them to death so that we might walk faithfully with our God, that he might truly be the first and foremost in, in all that we do with regards to our activities. And today we look at how Christ is to be preeminent within the church. And uh, Paul has been talking to a church, and he's been talking to them, and, and the transition that takes place between the passage last week and this week is he was dealing with individual Christians last week, and now he's going to speak to us as a corporate body as a fellowship of believers gathered together in the, in the uh, if you will, the home of the local church. And he's speaking in the first century to the church at Colossae. His church was in what is uh, today modern-day Turkey. And they were de- dealing with a lot of struggles and issues. Uh, Christ was no longer preeminent in their church. He, he wasn't preeminent with regards to their understanding and doctrine of who he was. And he was not preeminent in the way they related to one another, whether it was by husband and wife, children to parents, with people with regards to their sin, uh, employers to employees. Uh, There were all kinds of issues. And Paul uses chapter 3 and chapter 4 to reorder, if you will, some of the issues and struggles that were going on. And it's amazing how a first century letter could have such deep application to us in the 21st century. Now, 2,000 years removed from that, and the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae ring true for us this morning. And so we're going to look this morning at verses 12 through 17 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, and we'll ask God's blessing again on our time, and, and then we'll jump right into it. It says... Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. To which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. My aim this morning is to just walk through this passage in in some ways as a working commentary just for us to understand it. And so let's ask God's blessing so we would understand it this morning. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your words to your church. And and Lord, we thank you for the Colossi church and what it teaches us. And and Lord, what we can learn from them, from their mistakes, from their uh, ignorance and, and the things we can learn from the strengths and the gifts that you empowered that fledgling church to be a part of. Lord, we want to be like the good things of Colossae, 
the Colossian church was bearing much fruit, Paul says in chapter 1. We want to bear much fruit. The people of God were fired up, growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And we too want to be fired up and, and growing in our relationship with you. But Lord, we're going to learn today that apart from you, this church can do nothing. And we need your grace and we need your strength and, and we need your direction so that we might be able to fulfill the calling you have for us, your chosen ones. So Lord, I pray we would open our ears and we would apply these truths uh, to our interaction with one another and that we would live out these practical truths even as we leave this place this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I have a confession to make. I'm fast approaching my 39th birthday. I won't tell you when it is, but it's coming quickly, so get your gifts ready. And it's, it's hard for me because this is the last year I'm going to have in the 30s. And they say 40s, the new 20, and so I'm feeling better about that. But uh, my children tell me I'm old. I wasn't old before, but now, especially you get a teenager in the house, everything you do is old, okay? And so my son will ask me, what was it like, Dad, to live without a TV? I'm like, son, I'm not that old. We had TVs. How about electricity? Dad, well, how could I have a TV without electricity, son? I, I had electricity as well. And he'd say, well, what, what didn't you have, okay? What didn't you have? And I, and I told him, you know, we didn't have cell phones. And Noah, all of 12 years old, gasped. How could you live without cell phones? As if it's oxygen that we breathe in. And I began to tell him that uh, for the good portion of my life, cell phones were, were not a part of it. Probably into college before I ever remember a cell phone uh, really being a commonplace experience. And... Uh, and that's the amazing thing about technology. Technology is moving at such an incredible pace that we find ourselves, as we watch technology grow, we find ourselves growing old. I'm going to help some of you grow old this morning by reminding you of some of the cell phones that we uh, have used to have had to live with. So let's look at some of them. In 1981, you remember those phones. Those were only the cool dudes that had those phones, those important businessmen. And in 1981, you were living off of what was called a 1G network, voice only. You could make a phone call. It sounded like a CB radio conversation. And you could have a conversation at $4.99 a minute. Remember that? So if you were going to use that phone, it better be important. It better be something that, that really needs to get articulated because it was going to cost you an arm and a leg. But then in 1992... Uh, we graduated, and we graduated from having such a large phone. Of course, the phone gets smaller, and uh, we get uh, 2G. And 2G allowed uh, literally for the opportunity for minimal data, some more voice on an analog network, and uh, we began to be able to surf the Internet with our phone at a rapid speed of 14.4K. What that meant is you could download one of your emails in about 45 minutes. And then we graduated again in 2001. Now some of you are like, okay, I remember in these days. And we graduated to what we call 3G networks. And 3G networks allowed us to, first of all, move to, to, into some digital formatting of, of voice uh, telephone conversations. It allowed for text messaging. It allowed for the Internet to be moving at, at a much faster rate, faster than even dial-up uh, that we had in our homes not too many years ago. And uh, we were enjoying it. We were feeling like things were lightning fast. Even on a 3G, uh, in the lowest resolution, you might even be able to watch one of your old shows. I mean, it was happening. Things were really, we were all excited at the turn of the century. It's kind of weird saying that at the turn of the century. We were enjoying life. And then 
about four years ago, we moved into the 4G format. We were flying on the internet highway. We were streaming movies. We were able to have Skype phone calls right from our phone. We were able to do all the texting, everything we ever needed to do. This was the introduction really of the time of the smartphones. Really smartphones came into their existence uh, at the end of the 3G generation into the 4G generation. And now they're talking and they still are kind of secretive of what it will look like, but they're beginning to dream up what 5G is going to look like. What is that network going to enable us to do? And a couple of websites that I looked at said the sky is the limit by 2020 of the things that you might be able to do on your phone. One of the messages said, I thought it was kind of interesting, what you have, if you carry a smartphone on you, you have more technology in your hand and at your disposal than NASA did putting Neil Armstrong on the moon. That's pretty impressive. And they're saying by the time 2020 rolls around and we have perfected what is the fifth generation of network uh, telecommunications, we might be able to do things we never thought possible again in our hands. Now here's the thing, as, as the network has grown, each of those Gs have, have grown, we've also recognized the advent of new kinds of cell phones. Cell phones have gotten a lot bigger. We were all excited when the flip phone came out, and then, and then we got into Blackberries, and now we've got these uh, iPhones and, and Samsung Galaxies and all of that, and, and the phone has become a mini computer at our fingertips. But here's the thing that I've learned. As exotic and amazing as a phone might be, if you don't have a proper network, you're not going to be able to do anything. Have you ever been anywhere where the network doesn't work? You ever been where, where your phone can't do a single thing? It's, it's good for a paperweight. Okay, there you go, okay? And so as a result of that, we need to recognize, we need to recognize that if we're not plugged into the right network, then all that technology is for naught. In our passage today, Paul's going to talk about the network. He's going to talk about the hidden thing, because you can't see the network that God runs on, just as you can't see the signal that's being transmitted to your phone. And here's the problem. As churches continue to move into the 21st century, we continue to create flashier and flashier ministry. Our programs are better than ever from a human standpoint. We've got all the technology, we've got all the bells and whistles of what you could ask for with regards to your churches. But here's the question. Are you hooked to the proper network? You see, a, a ministry, a church that has all of that technology going for it, all those bells and whistles, without a proper network, that church is just a big, cumbersome paperweight. But when it's plugged into the right network, when it's plugged into what God has intended that church to be, then it's amazing. The sky's the limit on what that church and that body of people can do for the glory and praise of God. In our passage this morning, Paul unveils a 5G program for the church. How is he going to present it? He's going to present it by telling us five things. Your pastors put G's to all of them. 5G, there you go. It's nothing cumbersome for you. But we're going to see that if we don't do these things, it doesn't matter how great our worship team is. It doesn't matter how great the preaching is. It doesn't matter how great any of the ministries that we do to our children are. If we aren't plugged into doing these things, then we're going to do this. We're going to waste our time doing these things because it will all be for naught. Paul tells us in, in verse 12 that the first thing that we need to rely on and know about is we need to rely on God's grace. 
The first way that we tap into that 5G network is we must rely on God's grace every day. Notice in the text, it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. So the goal that God has for us is to put on compassionate hearts. We'll talk about that in a moment, but he identifies who we are. And he identifies us and reminds us that what we as a church must be heavily involved in and understanding is a word that's not even in the text, and that's the word grace. The first thing we need to recognize as a church to get on God's network so that we can fulfill God's calling is we must recognize God's grace in everything that we do. And he starts by reminding us that we are God's chosen ones. Look in the text. He starts with chosen ones. Now, for us in our uh, Western civilization, 21st century mind, right away we think of uh, terms like predestination and, and things like that. But I will tell you that in the passage, Paul, when he articulates that, they're not thinking about uh, deep theological terms. They're thinking racially. And I want you to notice in verse 11, Paul says to the Colossian church, he says just a verse ahead of it, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, when, when Paul says in verse 12, if he doesn't say in verse 11 what he does, then the Israelites in the Colossian thing says, hey, wait a minute, Paul's talking to us. We're the chosen ones. We have the patriarchs. Abraham's our father. We're the circumcised individuals. We are the, the precious people of God. We are the one whom God brought out of captivity, not only under the Egyptians, but under the Babylonians. We are the one that God has said is the, we are the apple of his eye. We are the ones that, that God has loved and sent his favor upon them. And so when they would hear chosen ones, it was an ability for them spiritually to be racist towards other people. We're in and you're not. Paul says to the entire body full of barbarians and, and Scythians who were even worse than the barbarians, to the Greeks, to the uncircumcised individuals, to the, fle- to the free and to the slave, he says to all of them, in the body of Christ, you're all chosen of God. You are all a part of a special people. You're a people that God cares about and loves. You're the people that God has saved. And we need to be reminded of that truth this morning because in our churches, there are people that that we think, or even in our world today, who are way out of uh, the reach of God's grace. And Paul reminds these people a truth we need to recognize as well. You see, Paul recognized that he was the worst of sinners. And he says, I don't care how bad you've lived. I don't care what's on your resume before coming to Christ. All I know is on the road to Damascus, Paul says, I had been a man who persecuted the church. I saw people put to death under my authority. And on that road to Damascus, in that moment when I met Jesus Christ, the old was gone and the new has come. And it wasn't because he, Paul says, I made this decision. It wasn't because Paul said, Colossians, because you had something to offer God. You and I in the 21st century as in the 1st century are chosen by God because of God's unmerited favor towards us. 
and it reminds us that just as he reached out to take and grab us, so he can reach out and grab even the most despicable of all sinners. And so the church needs to recognize that. We need to live in that. We need to relate with one another with that grace in mind. Notice, second, he calls them holy. He says we need to understand God's grace and recognize that we are holy and, and holy uh, tells us we're literally a peculiar bunch. Now, some of you can be called peculiar and it has nothing to do with your Christianity. It's just you're weird, okay? And that's okay. We like weird people. But when he talks about being holy, he's saying you're different. There's something different about you. And so not only are you chosen by God, but now you are different. People are going to see you differently. Well, what makes an individual holy? What makes them different? You are different than every other unbeliever in your life because your life has two volumes to your biography. The volume number one, life before Christ, and volume number two, life after Christ. Every unbeliever around you may experience a lot of the same things, the same upbringing, the same experiences, but they do not have that dichotomy of volume one and volume two. They just have life before Christ. They don't have that experience, that opportunity to say, this is what I was doing before Christ, and this is what I'm doing after Christ. This is a reminder that when we begin to live out holy lives, we can't put a bunch of awards on our lapel as if saying, look at how good I've become. Every time we live out holiness in our life, we need to be reminded that it wasn't because of something we did, but it's because of God. God has made us holy, and it's by his grace. It's by his grace. Now, why in the world would God do that? Why would God take a sinner and make them holy? Notice the text tells us that we are beloved. We are beloved by God. Now, how could God save sinners? How could he uh, take someone uh, who has no good to him. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 2 that we are alienated from God. How could he take one who is alienated from God and make him family? How could he make an enemy of God a friend? Is it because of something we've done? No. Is it because there's some inherent goodness within us? No. But it's what the songwriter says. The songwriter says how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to a wretch his treasure. You see, we were alienated. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And God, out of his immense and vast love for us, sent a son. And he sent his son to die for the people of Colossae, to that church and he sent his son to die for the people of Village Bible Church. That we would no longer be wretches, but we would be sons and daughters of the Most High. And again, before you start thinking, wow, look at all that I've brought to the table. Remember, this is all because of God's grace. God didn't have to do it. We weren't asking for him to do it. But God made a decision before the foundations of the world to make you and I his children. Now why is this important with regards to the church? Because if we forget what grace is all about, we will cease to be the church. 
You see, grace is the oil within a car engine. It lubricates all of the things so that the car doesn't overheat. We need oil of grace in a church or we'll overheat. We'll overheat with one another. We'll overheat with our sin. And we need that mechanism. We need that, uh, if you will, additive in our lives that allows the gears of our Christian walk together to be greased so that there's no friction. You see, grace is going to be important as we live out our lives when, when, when one of us sins. Because our, our, our issue is, is when one sins right away, we, we say, how could you do that? What kind of sin would you be a part of like that? That's gross. Why would you do such things? And, and we'd be filled with all kinds of holier-than-thou attitudes. And grace says, uh, if it were not for the grace there, I would be as well. And grace tempers our response. Grace reminds us that we didn't come arrive, arrived in the package, if you will, but that we came a sinner saved by that same grace. And so it helps us as one another sins. It helps us in our relationships, which we'll learn about. If you don't have grace, you'll never forgive. If you don't understand grace, you'll never uh, allow someone the opportunity to have another chance. Because there'll be one strike and you're out without grace. And Paul recognizes within the church, if it's going to do what God has called it to be, then it must be tapped into that grace. Because if it's not, the church will implode. He starts out with grace. How well do we as a church understand this grace? You see, grace is going to keep you from looking down your noses at other people. And it's going to begin to really start looking at the inside. And then when someone does something wrong to you, when someone hurts you, when someone falls to a sin, before you uh, jump on them, you first of all recognize, I could be there as well. I might even be there as well. And what needs to get rectified in my life? God loves us, and God desires for us to experience his grace and to allow others to experience that grace as well within the local church. Notice second of all, if that grace is there, it will allow for a dynamic, and that is that we will be glued together in loving relationships. You see, without grace, there's no relationship. Think about it as a married couple for a moment. There's no way you'd be married anymore if there wasn't grace, right? I mean, my goodness, Amanda could have left a long time ago. But there's grace. She recognizes, hey, I, I have got a, a, a numbskull of a, of a husband, okay? And he's going to make stupid decisions. He's going to do a bunch of dumb stuff. And if she thinks that she's perfect, then I'm lost, right? But thank be to God that my wife says, you know what? Tim is pretty messed up. But you know what? Amanda would say, so am I. And so two sinners are going to have to figure this thing out. Two sinners are going to have to show grace to one another when we wrong one another, when we hurt one another, when we get in each other's way. Grace is going to be the ability that, that are going to allow for the ability for that couple to continue in that relationship and that committed love together. Now notice in the text, Paul says, to have grace means that it's going to be lived out with compassionate hearts. It's going to be lived out with compassionate hearts. Well, what would cause us to be compassionate? Compassion comes from grace. Compassion was a virtue that the first century people thought was an emotion that came literally from the gut, from the bowels, 
okay? And the reason why is that you got a sick feeling in your stomach when you saw someone and had compassion on them. Literally, your innards, if you will, would become undone. And think about that. The last time you've seen something where compassion welled up within you, we think it comes, and we know it doesn't come from the actual flesh of the heart, but we speak about it as an emotion of the heart. The Greeks understood it as something far deeper than that. It came from the very inside of who they were. It was a deep-seated emotion. It was an emotion that sought to alleviate the pain or turmoil or trouble of another. But without grossing you out this morning, many people today in the church have IBS, irritable, irritable bowel syndrome. And I don't mean it from a digestive meaning. I mean it from a compassion. See, when they see people in their trouble, when they see people in their turmoil, when they see people in their stress, they don't have compassion. They get irritated. They get bound up. They get angry. They begin to say, you know, you see somebody, and, and all of us have done this from some point or another. We see someone under stress. We see someone who's struggling, and we say, you know what? That's their problem. I wonder what bad decisions they made that got them into that situation. I wonder what kind of life they lived that would, would produce such a life. If they were only better parents, if they were only better husbands or wives, if they were only better children, those issues wouldn't be a problem. And remember, grace reminds us that we all need compassion. One of the praise songs we sing starts out, everyone needs compassion. The kindness of a Savior. And we need to recognize this morning that when Jesus looked on us, and he saw us in our problems, and he saw us in our circumstances. The, the Bible says when he saw the crowd, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. He grieved within himself. He wanted to alleviate their pain. We need to recognize this morning that we have a decision to make. The decision is, is when, when people's issues and struggles come knocking on our door, or come to us after we give out a lame duck handshake to them in the foyer today, when you say, hey, how are you doing? And they come undone because they've had a lousy week or, or their life's fallen apart. You have the decision to get irritable going, hey, I don't have time for this. I, I don't have uh, anything I can do for you. So, so let's just move on. I'm sorry, but, but move on. Don't, don't cramp my style. Don't, don't ruin my day. Or... You can have compassion on them, and you can see that as an opportunity for you and I to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus. Now, here's why. Because if we don't show compassion, we'll never forgive. We will never forgive. And Paul says that not only do we need to show compassionate hearts, but he says, hey, you're going to have to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint, you're going to have to forgive each other in verse 13. You must forgive, he says at the end, end of 13. Not maybe think about it. Not maybe this is a suggestion if you want to be a good Christian. Every child of God must forgive. But it begins with this compassion. And it means that we're going to have to do some things. And what compassion is going to create in us as we interact with people, notice at, at the end of verse 12, it's going to produce kindness Humility, meekness, 
and patience. I'm not going to spend any time there. I think we know what those words mean. But literally, you have a choice to be made. The choice is you can go around being Oscar the Grouch, angry with people. Anytime someone comes into your circle, you can just become irritated with them. Or you can be one who opens your arms to everyone just as Jesus did. Even though it's going to change your schedule, even though it may mean you need to give some of your money and time and attention to something, even though you may have other important things to do, it's going to mean just that. When I was considering becoming an elder, I was still very young and went and talked with my dad who had served as an elder for years, and I said, Dad, you know, they're asking me to be an elder. What do you think I should be ready for? What should I study in the Bible to answer their questions? I thought it was all a knowledge thing. Get the knowledge down, give the right answers. And my dad said, how are you with your schedules being changed? How good are you at your plans being thwarted? I said, what do you mean by that? He says, you've lived in this house long enough. You know how many times we missed out on a Friday night meal because we went to so-and-so's house to see them. As a teenager, you weren't too happy about that. And now what says you 10 years after? Are you ready for your schedule to change? Are you ready because God's going to call you as an elder to be compassionate? And are you willing to allow that change in your schedule to take place so that you can serve those who are needed? Here's the thing. That's not a part of the elder qualification. That's a qualification of being a child of God. Why? Because we've experienced Christ's compassion. And as we've experienced that compassion, we too are to show it to others. Well, how do we show that compassion? It begins by bearing with one another. Notice in the text, he goes on, he says, okay, these relationships, you're going to have these relationships. And in the Colossae church, there were people in the church that when others walked into the Colossae church, they rolled their eyes. Oh, there's so-and-so. I don't know why he keeps coming to this place. The church would be a lot better off if so-and-so wasn't here, if we didn't have to deal with these issues and these struggles. And Paul says, you've got to bear with one another. But what does bearing with one another mean? What it means is that, listen, relationships are going to require endurance. You see, in our world today, we think that if something starts to become difficult, we throw it away. We get rid of it. Remember back in the day when your appliances broke? What did you do? You called a repairman. They would come in and they would get the part and they would fix it. What do we do now? Something goes wrong in one of our things on our appliances and we throw it away. And we do that with relationships. Instead of enduring and, and, and working on that relationship, we just throw it away. So someone wrongs you. So you, you're at church and someone does something. Maybe, maybe you, you, you feel neglected by somebody or, or, or you, you see someone and they're blowing you off and, and you get out of the, into the parking lot and what do you do? Well, we're done. I'm done. I'll go find someone else. And Paul says that we don't just throw away relationships. We bear with one another. We endure the pains of one another. Bearing one another literally is putting up with one another's messes. 
The best way to illustrate this, I went back and forth trying to figure out how do you illustrate this. What, what we desire as parents in bearing one another, this is the situation. Let me, let me paint it for you. Some of you will laugh, some of you will cry, but here's the situation. You're driving, you're in the hour of a, uh, a 10 hour a car ride, and, and the hooligans in the back. He's touching me. No, he's touching me. Tell him to stop getting in my stuff. Nah, 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 nah. Okay? I know none of you are there. You've got perfect kids. I get it. Okay? And you hear all that conflict going on. And, and there's two responses you want. One, you want to wring their neck. Number two, you're praying that someone will stop it, right? Someone will get everybody off the crazy cycle. And you just hope that someone's going to say, you know what, no matter what you're doing, I'm not going to, I'm not going to jump into this and, and, and cause more chaos to take place. I'm going to endure. And so you may poke me, you may do all of that, but I'm not going to respond in kind. Paul is saying when people hurt you, when people wrong you, when they rub you the wrong way, you do not respond in kind. You endure by, by, in essence, being an absorber of those wrongs. And the Bible says that, uh, in fact, in First uh, Peter, that love covers a multitude of sins. So you're going to have to love in order for this to take place. So he says you've got to bear with one another. Notice he moves on and he says you don't just have to bear with one another. But what happens when the offenses get so bad and so difficult that you cannot, in essence, go on with life as, as is. And what, what Paul is saying is, is if you can't relate to one another anymore because an offense that's taken place, you don't run away from it, you don't say, I'm just going to um, abandon any kind of involvement with them or I'm going to uh, uh, try to go to a su- another service so I don't have to see those people. Or I see them walking down the hallway, skirt the other way. Paul says, okay, if you can't bear with one another because the offense is so big, notice what the text says in verse 13. He says, if you've got a complaint, you need to address it. You need to address it. Now, he says that what needs to happen is, is if there's a complaint, you got to take it to him. And so, if you're harboring something against somebody, and you can't let it go under the auspices of love, you need to go to that person, and you need to say, you know what, something's bothering me. What you said the other day, what you said in small group that everybody thought was funny, wasn't funny to me, because that cut deeper than I know you even know that it did. And, and I just need to make you aware of it. So that you, maybe, you, maybe you didn't even recognize it. Maybe you didn't even know it. Now, you got to remember, grace is important. So you don't say, how dare you? Who do you think you are that you would say such a thing in small group? What kind of person are you? But you recognize, you know what? A lot of people probably could come and say the same thing about me. They could say that I've hurt them. And so as I go, because I'm hurt by something someone has said, I need to go already recognizing that I'm a sinner who's guilty of these things already. But notice what the text says. So you take your complaint to the other, but notice the response by Paul is clear. What happens if that person doesn't receive you? What happens if, if by you uh, sharing that complaint uh, just continues to add fuel to the fire? What happens if they don't deserve it? What happens if they're going to do it again? What happens if they're never going to learn? What happens if I start saying, well, that's just going to enable bad behavior? 
While there's always, and it's not in the text, but it's biblical, while there's always a place for rightful correction and even punishment and restitution, in our text, let's just sit with this as Paul's word to us today, that we're to forgive. We're to forgive. We are to forgive, not because they deserve it. Paul says we're not to forgive just because it's going to make us feel better. We aren't just to forgive because that's the Christian thing to do. The reason why we are to forgive is because Christ has forgiven you. And he gives us a whole parable, Jesus does, of the, of the servant who, who is unmerciful, who has been forgiven by his master a great debt, millions of dollars. And as soon as he is given up or forgiven of that debt, he goes and finds a man who owes him mere pennies. And he goes and he grabs that servant and he says, if you don't pay me, I'm going to throw you in jail. And Jesus says, we're no different. Here we've been forgiven this great debt by God himself. And yet we recognize that our offense to God is an unfathomable offense. It's huge. We can't even comprehend how much we've offended our God in heaven. But then we, we lose our lid when it comes to all the offense that someone else has. And we say, I can never forgive. Let me tell you something. If you say you can't forgive that thing, then you don't understand what forgiveness is. And if you cannot forgive, and I understand there have been some heinous things that have happened in my life, and if I can't forgive, then I don't know what it means to be a Christian. Because the only thing that helps me to understand being a Christian is that Christ forgave me. And so we've got to forgive one another. And Paul says you do it because Christ did it for you. So we recognize if these relationships are going to be glued together, then they're going to be glued together by us bearing with one another, by us forgiving one another. And notice he goes on and he says, okay, after you forgive one another, you're going to have to put on, verse 14, love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Before we move to that, I I missed a quote in my notes. C.S. Lewis had a great quote on forgiveness. He said this, everyone loves forgiveness until they have to extend it to someone else. Don't we love forgiveness? Don't we love it when people come and say, please forgive me? Oh, man, we could just sit there forever. But we hate that virtue when we have to extend it to someone who's wronged us. When a church understands what it means to bear with one another and forgive one another, Paul says in verse 14, they are going to be bound together with Christ's love. And it's going to create unity. Because we're going to recognize it ain't about us. You see, the biggest, breaking, uh, the biggest barrier of unity is you and me. Because unity is a common pursuit. Unity is a common endeavor. Unity is a, is a common participation to a, uh, a particular goal. Unity breaks down when I want to do something and you want to do something and and our preferences are more important than the thing that we are striving together to accomplish. And so the church needs to recognize if we're going to do this thing together, our preferences got to be thrown by the wayside and we need to pursue harmony and unity because Christ has called us together to be one body. And your body is led by a head. And so your body this morning, as you got up, the left side didn't say, I want to stay in bed, and the right side said, I'm going to get up. 
and then you look like the spastic individual fighting itself, okay? Your brain said it's time to get up, and your body did what your brain told it to do. The head dictates what's going to take place. Christ dictates where the church is going to go, what the church is going to do. And our preferences aren't the issue. But the church is filled with preferences these days. Well, I want this, and I want that, and if I can't find this, then I'll go find another church, and they'll do that. And, and we've got to be careful with this. When we're bound together in, in love for one another, our preferences are going to be thrown by the wayside. Well, what will happen when that takes place? What happens when a, a, a church is glued together in loving relationships? Notice in the text, the peace of Christ will rule in our hearts, and we will be called into one body. The church will be at peace. There will be no struggles. There will be no strife. And when there is strife, it will be seen as an opportunity for God's grace to be seen. The elders uh, about a year ago went through uh, some elder training each of our times we got together in our monthly elder meetings. And, and it was through peacemaker ministries. And it was about conflict resolution and how leaders need to lead. And, and one of the examples that it used was from the movie Apollo 13. And, and for those that have seen the movie, you remember the scene where, where the NASA guys down uh, here on Earth were, were lamenting all of the problems that were going on, to which one of the supervisors says, this is the worst NASA uh, accident, we'll never survive this, to which one of the other directors says, I believe this will be our finest hour. When conflict and disunity comes, the church can look at it and say it's the greatest disaster ever to take place. We'll never survive it. Or we can look at it like the other guy did and say this is the church's finest hour for us to be recipients and trophies of God's grace. And so don't look at conflict as something to flee from or something to fight, but something to faithfully endure for the cause of Christ. We'll be joined together. Now, this will lead to something else. Notice it will lead to us living lives with hearts full of gratitude. We'll have gratitude in our hearts. Notice the text says three times, three times in our text. Look at, look at the text before you. In, in verse 15, and at the end of verse 15, and be thankful. At the end of verse 16, we're to sing and, and, and teach and preach with thankfulness in our hearts. At the end of verse 17, we're to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to our God the Father through him. Thankful hearts are hearts of a pleasant disposition. What I mean by that is that they have a pleasant disposition because they're just happy to be alive. The blessings and the goodness of the things that they're involved in, they don't see things as half empty. They see things as half full and maybe even overflowing. I didn't understand real thanks, thankfulness until we had our third son. Luke is six years old right now, and I'm going to brag on my son for a little bit. Luke is by far the happiest kid I've ever met in my life. He's just happy all the time. That has been supported. The principal at our local school says Luke is the happiest kid in the school. The teachers are happy. The students are happy when Luke's there. When Luke's sick, the, the, the temperature of the church goes down because we get angry with one another. Luke's there. We're all good. And I, I couldn't understand it. So I asked Luke one time, 
I said, Luke, why, why are you always so happy? Even when he does get mad, it's only for a short time and he forgets why he's mad. He just, he moves on. He smiles all the time, this kid. Now watch, today he'll have the worst day of his life and he'll just be angry. Y'all go look at him and he'll be angry. The kid's usually happy. And I asked him, I said, Luke, why, why are you happy? He says, well, it's not fun being sad. I said, okay. And when you, when you get down to it, my son has a heart of thanksgiving. When mom puts a plate before his table, please understand, this is the one the DNA pool got it right on the last one, okay? The plates get put down. I don't like mashed potatoes. I don't want this. I don't want that. Luke says, thank you, mom. That's a great meal. He's thankful. I may not have anything, so this is better. I don't know if he likes it or not, but he's thankful. He's thankful for the clothes that he wears. He's, he's the one that's thankful after all the Christmas gifts are, are opened. It isn't, man, I didn't get what I wanted. He says, man, this is great. And so how are we to be thankful spiritually? I know it's easy as a six-year-old to be thankful. But how do we do it as a Christian? Each of those things that we are to be thankful for reminds us of why thankfulness should be a part of the Christian life. Number one. We are first to be thankful because we have the peace of Christ. What that means is you and I are secure in our position as God's chosen, holy, and beloved individuals who God has brought into his family. And so, yes, you could have a bad week. I didn't have the best of weeks this week. Things didn't go the way I wanted them to. But I should be able to be thankful even in those circumstances because I recognize I'm not living this life as an orphan. I'm a part of the family of God. And when I recognize my family, I recognize that I've got much to be thankful for. I'm not doing this alone. I'm doing it together. Second, we are to be thankful, verse 16 says, because we have the word of God that is there to lead us in truth and righteousness. And so you're having a bad day. You're struggling. Nothing's going the way you need it to. Well, you can be thankful that you're not doing it alone. God is with you. You'll never walk alone. We sang that this morning. Number two, we've got God's word that teaches and directs and leads us to the paths of righteousness. So we're not sitting there throwing up our arms going, God, I don't know what to do. God, I don't know what, I, what, what decision I should make. God's word is there, and it's everything that we need for life and, and godliness. And our hearts, because of that, no matter our circumstances, should be full of thanksgiving. And in verse 17, we are to be thankful because you and I have each and every day to live with Christ being preeminent in our lives. That we get to wake up every morning, and Jesus is the captain of our lives. That we get to walk this life not alone, but with Christ, who is with us and his spirit is inside of us, and we get the opportunity to be like him in the good times, we get to be like him and watch how he responds in the bad times and even the ugly times. That whether God gives or, or takes away, we can say because he's with us, blessed be the name of the Lord. We've got reason to celebrate and be thankful. Because God is with us. So let's take some inventory. How well are you doing? We're only three G's in. Do you understand God's grace? Are you glued together in loving relationships? Are you filled with gratitude? That God is all that you need? 
if we're really honest with ourselves this morning, we would say as a church, we may be doing some of these things pretty well. But we can also recognize we could do much better. And so Paul says in verse 16, if we want God's best for us as a church, we need to see the word of Christ as our only means for growth. We don't see the (coughs) words of Christ as the only means for growth. Paul says in our text that the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly. Literally, that means that, that the scriptures are to be at home in our hearts. We are to make the scriptures our abode. And what that means is if you use that illustration, that word picture, the Bible, the scriptures should be just as our home is. It should not be something that's unfamiliar to us. You shouldn't look at the scripture and be like, well, where'd this come from? What's, what's this all about? If you've lived in your home for any amount of time, you, you know all the nooks and crannies of it, right? You don't walk into the dining room and go, wow, where did this place come from? I've never seen this place before. You're at home in it. You're familiar with it. And so when the word of God dwells in you, you're, you're familiar with the scriptures. Second, your home like the scriptures, is where you spend much of your time. As a Christian, we are made to scriptures our home, and just as in our home, we invest a lot of time and energy in our homes. I mean, what good is it to have a mortgage? What good is it to have a home if you're not spending any time there? And so it's something that we should be spending time in. If the word of God is going to dwell in you, you've got to spend time there. And so as a Christian, is it something you're familiar with? Is this something you spend time with? Number three, just like our homes, the word of Christ is a place we go in all circumstances. When I've had a great day, I go home. When I've had a terrible day, I go home. When there's been a birth in the family, we go home. When there's been a death in the family, we go home. In all circumstances, at some point in that day, we go home. Even when we travel far away, at some point, at some moment in time, we make it back home. And what I'm saying is, is we must, if we want the word of Christ to dwell in us, every circumstance must be placed under the authority of God's word. So if you're having a good day, apply it to God's word. If you're having a bad day, apply it to God's word. If you're having a terrible, terrible day, apply it to God's word. If, if someone loses, you lose someone close to you, apply it. If you gain someone, apply it. Every circumstance that we have should be dwelling in the scriptures. We are to make it our home. Finally, our home is a place that we should be inviting others to come and be a part of. We're to be hospitable. And likewise, the word, when it's dwelling in us, we will want to invite others on the journey. We want to invite others to to be in the word with us. And so we're familiar with it. We're spending a lot of time and energy there. All of our circumstances are are being fleshed out through this word. And then when we, we begin to see what God's word does, as it begins to dwell in us richly, we tell others, do you see what's happening? Do you see what God's word is saying? Do you see how it's being applied to our lives and, and the impact that it's having? It's when you've cleaned up your house and you want to show it off to everybody. Come and, and be a part, be hospitable. We need to be hospitable with the word with one another. But for this to happen, 
It must dwell in you richly, not around you, not something you carry around on Sunday morning, but it needs to dwell in you richly. Rick Renner put it this way, Christians, throw open the doors, roll out the red carpet, give the scriptures a grand reception. If you let the word of God dwell in you this way, it will produce an amazing amount of spiritual wealth in your life. If you are not engaging in this process of letting the word of God dwell in you richly, then you are missing out on a major part of the Christian life. I'm thankful for a church that loves the word of God. It loves to hear it preached. It loves to be challenged by it. It loves to study it. It loves to apply it. Don't give up that hunger, but allow that hunger to continue to grow. Don't lose that fire for it. Because when a church hears from God through the word, whether in sermon, notice Paul says in sermon, whether teaching and admonishing, or in songs, singing hymns, or uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, whether we're doing it with the sermon, whether we're doing it uh, with song, we need to allow that word to dwell in us richly. That throughout the week, we just continue to be rehearsing over and over again what God's word has said. When we do that, When that's a part of the church we're a part of, it will allow us to pursue the glory of Christ in all that we say and do. That's the final point. We will pursue the glory of Christ in all that we say and do. Paul finishes this passage by saying, when we rely on God's grace and are glued together in love, when we are grateful and growing through God's word and living lives of gratitude, it is only then that we'll be positioned to pursue the glory of Christ. You see, when Christ is preeminent in a church, watch out. Because that's when miracles happen. That's where relationships are brought back together. That is where God begins to do his best work. In the early church of the book of Acts, people were sold out to Jesus, meaning he was number one in their life. And it was seen in their speech, and it was seen in their action. And God today is longing for you and I, Village Bible Church, to be that type of church. God's brought us a long way, but he's not done yet. Just like our technology, the best is yet to come. The ideas that God has, the plans that he has, the ministries that he has for us to do in the future will be so great and so marvelous. But between now and then, we must tap into that network. We must tap into these things so that we will honor him today. We will serve him today so that we may be positioned for what God has for us to come. So let's become that church. A church that does all that it's supposed to, whether in word or deed, that we do everything for the glory of Jesus Christ because he's preeminent. I would be selfish to ask that you pray for your leaders in this that we might be able to lead you in such a way, that we will seek to honor Christ in in all that we do, in all our activities, in all our relationships, so that we might be on the cutting edge of what God has for his people in the days to come. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for this word. And Lord, it's easy to put together programs, it's easy to, to put together ministries, but what is hard to do is to do all, whether in word or deed, to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that 
How we experience your grace and see your grace would bring you glory. How we live out this life with one another would bring you glory. That our hearts of gratitude might bring you glory. That the way that we look at God's word would, would bring you glory. Lord, we want to bring you glory, but we recognize that while the heart may be willing, the flesh at times is weak. And so, Lord, I pray for the broken relationships that are here. I know they're out there. I know people have wronged one another. But, Lord, let us rise above that, not because we're just great people, but because we recognize we were sinners and and you have forgiven us. Lord, I pray this week would be a week of restoration in the lives of broken relationships. Lord, I also pray that this would be a week where we become all the more reacquainted with your word. Lord, it's easy to have the word Bible in our middle name of our church. But it's hard to make the Bible the middle of our lives. And so I pray that my brothers and sisters would would dwell, would allow that word to dwell in them richly. That those who haven't maybe opened that word other than then when they're asked at church would open it and, and become refreshed by it and challenged by it and moved by it. That they might invite others to participate with them. Lord, I pray for our small groups that we wouldn't just go through the motions, but we would come ready and prepared to speak about and to apply and to help teach and admonish one another in all sorts of wisdom that comes from your word. That, Lord, it would overflow in our singing and in our praising and our fellowship. Lord, we want to be the church you've called us to be. So I pray that you would strengthen us and, and, and would motivate us and, and, and move us to live these things out. Correct the things that need correcting and encourage us in the ways that we're doing those things well. And show us how we can do them better. Now, Lord, give us this time as we fellowship together, as we leave this place onto another week of of work and activity, that we would be reminded once again in all that we do, whether in word or deed, that we would do it for the glory of the preeminent one, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray all these things. Amen.